0: And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast hosted by me, Tony Mazer, the free podcast that goes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcast. But if you want more episodes, I mean, why would you? But I got good guests on. We got good people. Uh, Go to uh, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer for as little as three bucks a month. You get a bunch of content from me, solo episodes and early access to guests, as I always say, and early access to guests like my guests today. And that is Mike Kanichi. And Mike is actually the host of a podcast himself. It's called In the Spotlight. You can go find it. Uh actually I'm gonna, if you're watching on the video, I will share it on the YouTube page here. So go check it out and go subscribe to his YouTube page. And uh Mike, thanks for doing the podcast here. Thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Tony. I really appreciate it.
0: So, uh, first of all, talk about, uh, g- give us a little bit about your background. Talk about the show and what you do and a lot of your uh, community outreach.
1: So, um, <clears throat> basically about, I'd say, eight years ago, I did a local show in my uh, town, and it was called uh, Hometown Heroes, which I still do that show, but I just interview people locally for that show, like people who have impacted their towns, their communities. And then COVID hit and. Obviously, March of 2020, and uh, I wasn't able to do my shows anymore because I was doing my shows at a studio at Comcast, and obviously, you couldn't go there. So a year went by; I didn't get to do any shows, and I really wanted to start doing them again. And then I learned, you know, uh, by using Zoom or StreamYard stuff like that, I could have a, uh, you know, I could start doing my show again. Then I got to thinking; uh, I like to branch out a little bit because i feel like um that i i know a lot about the history of sports also entertainment music and stuff like that so i really wanted to create a show where i could you know interview more people nationally and uh that's when i came up within the spotlight and by like uh i would say august of 21 i just It really took off. I started interviewing so many great people, so many famous people. Uh, It's really been great these last two years doing that show.
0: Yeah, that was the one thing about during with COVID and how everybody had to pivot with Zoom. And I, I remember I was working for a radio station and we were affiliated at the time with CBS Radio. So we would have CBS Radio News and... Uh, I, I would be a bo- I would work on the board and I would hear, they would go to a commercial break and they would say, CBS Radio News is brought to you by Zoom Video Conferencing. And I didn't think two things about it. It's just so funny. I'm like, Zoom Video conference. Oh, so it's like Skype, whatever. And then sure enough, it just seemed like in one week, every single person I knew and that you knew downloaded it on their, their phones, on their computers, and it became life. And now, obviously, like you said, with StreamYard, that there's different options that people are kind of branching out, but Ultimately, Zoom ended up kind of becoming the kind of like when when you need to blow your nose and you get a Kleenex or I need my lips are chapped. I need to get some chapstick. And it it almost turned into like the it, it was the common name for it. It's like, oh, I'm going to use Zoom. OK, which one? Oh, StreamYard. <laughs> so it's just funny how everybody really had to pivot. And uh, like like you said, when you do a local show, And you like having those face-to-face interactions. That's got to be tough for people that, you know, you want to adjust, but there also was a need for a lot of local outreach during that time.
1: Right. And the thing about Zoom, what I think it was initially intended for was people weren't going to be able to go to work because of COVID. So to have meetings and stuff like that was more of a business thing to try to be able to have, you know, your monthly meetings, your weekly meetings, whatever the case may be. And that's what Zoom was really created for. But then I think a lot of people realized that, hey, I could interview this person or I could do this or I could do that. And you could just, Zoom gave you so much creativity as, uh, I'd say, an actor, as a talk show host, whatever the case might be. It's really taken on a life of its own.
0: Yeah, the days uh, of even like voiceover guys that there were voiceover actors that, uh, hey, we booked you for this gig. Okay, I need a plane ticket. I need a hotel to stay in Burbank somewhere and this and that. Or you get a microphone and they send you a line and you can do it in your underwear. Isn't that great? How just we've we've gotten to that point where we could just do it from home. <laughs> Everything is like, no, I don't need to leave the house today. No problem. And the people can have, I mean, people built their own studios during COVID. And they're like, I kind of like it here. Uh, My nice office swivel chair. And I guess I'm just going to continue doing my podcast here.
1: And really, when you get right down to it, by being able to use Zoom, StreamYard, uh, whatever people use, you were able to get more guests on your shows because they knew they didn't have to prepare. Like if you're going to do a regular interview and you got to go to somebody's studio or somebody's station, whatever the case may be. You know, you sometimes you don't have enough hours in the day to do that, especially if you're in Hollywood. I mean, you've got so many things going on. But if you tell them, hey, I could do it from your living room at nine o'clock in the evening and they've got time, it, it just allowed you to be able to have guests on your shows that you probably wouldn't have been able to have if Zoom didn't exist.
0: I I want to talk to you about some of those guests because I I got a chance to uh, watch a couple of your interviews and stuff, and I thought it was pretty cool. A couple of them actually have been on my show, too. Um, But uh, first, I want to talk about the local angle, because as somebody and I've worked in news before, my wife works in news, and I know you've been around it as well. The importance of local in a drastically globalized society nowadays where Uh, The local news kind of is going the way of the dodo bird. It is there is a need for it. But as far as the oh, why do we need 18 newscasts a day to talk about a cat that got stuck in a tree and the fireman went out with the ladder and pulled it down. So then it's it almost seems like local has been so deemphasized over time. But in reality those stories need to be be out there and you're based in Connecticut, which obviously is not too far from New York city and, and Boston and just new England in general. So there's a lot of stories, a lot of stuff to to go on. Did you feel that that was kind of your mission that you're like, look, these people have great stories. They need to tell their stories. I would like them to have that option, that outlet to get those out.
1: Yeah, I really did. And I, I think about this too, Tony, I think sometimes, uh, what's the best way to use it? I think sometimes we underrate the impact that people have in their towns and communities, because we live in such a society where it's, if you're not famous enough, you're not on TV enough, or you're not being recognized enough, where so many people do so many great things. I mean, you know, any local town you live in, you have to, first off, always respect Firefighters and police officers, because every day they essentially are putting their lives on the line. You never know what's going to happen and stuff like that. So you really have to understand that they're just as important as somebody who's making a $10 million movie or whatever the case might be. It doesn't make that person any better than them because they're making a difference every day in their lives. And the same goes for people who uh impacted their towns, whether they played college basketball. And whatever the, the case might be. So I just felt it was important that you always have to recognize the Sun heroes of the towns and the communities.
0: I'm not sure what it's like over in Connecticut, but I do know in the Midwest in Ohio where I'm broadcasting from, uh, if it's Friday, it's high school football night. And yeah, basically like the, the entire it's, town shuts down. It's whatever the big high school team or the couple of the high school teams and the news stations are all – they have their TV cameras out to cover uh, like some of the biggest games you had towards playoff time. Or right now when we're recording this is around homecoming season. So there there is a need for it, – it's just over time – I think a lot of places kind of dropped the ball. There were uh, internet outlets. I remember Patch was around, was a was an opportunity to get some local stories and everything. But um, and, and like every town has their own Sun newspaper, or whatever they they call it in different towns that kind of are owned by a bigger conglomerate. But these, like I said, these stories. There are local stories that people still want to know about them, that not everybody has to focus on who the president is or who Taylor Swift is dating today. It's like, no, there's what about the teacher who got the award for, uh, you know, this or what about uh, the, the local mechanic shop or local this, local that there is a need for it. And uh, I, <clears throat> like you said, I think we kind of get so wrapped up on what's going on in the more national news that we kind of forget about your neighbor.
1: Right. And it's funny you brought up high school football because in Connecticut, it's been huge for years. And the town I live in is uh, Derby, Connecticut. And when I was a kid, probably seven or eight years old, Derby High School's football team was one of the best programs in the state of Connecticut. They had a big rivalry with another town from Connecticut called Ansonia. And the thing of it is, is that I saw what that was like as a kid, how big high school football was, because there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was none of that stuff. So people went to high school football games all the time on Friday nights and Saturday mornings. And I've been able to interview a lot of those former high school players who had tremendous football, basketball, softball, and you name it, careers. I've been able to interview so many of them. And that's really what uh, the idea was about doing the local show was to really recognize people who impacted their towns, whether it was sports, whether it was, uh, you know, like you said, being a mechanic, whatever the case might be. I always felt that was important to never forget them, because unfortunately, nowadays, it's not as big as it was when I was a kid.
0: Are you a derby lifer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually we have a Hall of Fame. It's called the Derby Athletic Hall of Fame. And uh, I'm the president of that. So I mean, I've always had a love for the town of Derby, the, you know, basically the town I grew up in my whole life.
0: So can I ask you about the uh the anthrax scare? Oh, you remember that, huh? Well, I I it's my deep research <laughs> do on the podcast. Talk about what that what that was, because that ended up making international news. <laughs> I, I hate saying it puts your town on the map, but everyone was talking about it.
1: Well, you know, the thing of it is, Tony, is uh, that was a scare in itself. I mean, uh, I do remember there was a woman, I think she was 94 or 95 years old, and she got anthrax and she died within a day or two. And that was very sad. But if you remember, I mean, and I hate bringing this up because it was just such a horrible day in the history of our world. But September 11th had probably happened a month before that anthrax scare started coming out. And I'll tell you, like, just... I remember watching the Yankees. I'm a big Yankees fan. And I was watching them play, I think, the Oakland Athletics in the playoffs. And they're breaking news about this person contracted anthrax and stuff like that. And after what happened with 9-11 and then the anthrax and all that stuff, I just said to myself, God, what is going on with this world? I mean, September 10th, it just seemed so normal. And then ever, ever since September 11th, nothing has been normal. And it was really, really a tough time i remember that 2001 when uh 9-11 happened and all the way till the anniversary of the first year of it i just felt on edge all the time no matter where i walked to no matter where i went it just did not seem like a safe world like it once did
0: it's so it's really interesting because uh i was pretty young i was i was 13 i was in eighth grade during 9-11 so i you know you didn't i when you're eight in eighth grade uh, you
1: yeah, you don't understand it as much. You, you yeah. don't
0: truly understand, but you know that something is bad that's happening. And what's what's funny is it well, I don't want to say funny, but funny in a bad way. It's been twenty-two years since nine eleven. And it I mean, you have people in high school. You in fact, actually, the oldest college graduate probably wasn't even born when nine eleven happened. So we are at that point where that day is starting to become like Pearl Harbor. It's where Oh, that's right. It's December. Yeah, that's right. And you move on. And it just seemed like the tributes as every year has passed have kind of gone by the way. It's always like, wow, 22. Remember where you were? Yeah, I was in computer class. I, oh Gosh, I was at the store and I heard something. Boy, I can't believe it. Never forget. Anyways, and then a lot of people kind of forgot. And <clears throat> But there's a lot of people who live in that tri-state area where you're at, there, it's it's not somebody who lives across the country where you go. That was such a sad day. P- you knew. I'm not saying you, but like people in your community were directly affected by it. And I I, I don't know if the never forget type of thing with 9 11 is still in the blood of New Yorkers, Connecticut uh, residents, Jersey, everything like that. Is it? Is that still one day where when it comes around, it's just like, yeah, no, it's still hits uh, close to home.
1: Well, I think this, Tony, I think anybody that was alive for that and that could remember that day and just watching the news coverage and just everything that went on with it, you can never forget that day. I mean, it'll never be forgotten. And I could still remember, you know, I could forget things in my life, but I can always remember. I, I think I was talking to my mother um, and the first tower had hit and everybody just thought it was an accident, or whatever. And I could just remember that we saw that second plane just come right into that building. And like, you know, my mother, she's obviously older than me. She knew right away. She said, this is not an accident. This is terrorist. And I just couldn't even believe what I was seeing. And then, you know, you heard what was going on with the Pentagon and then the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And I just I'll never forget, like. I I had to go to work that day and I'm just saying to myself, God, what is going on? Like this, I, I think we all felt like our whole country was under attack that we weren't safe no matter where we went that day. So I think anybody that has been alive and witnessed what that day was like can never forget it. And I don't think anybody ever will.
0: I've talked to people uh, like, I know a lot of friends who live in New York and I, rem- I mean, being in Ohio, that was where the one plane that ended up in Shanksville kind of went around my area, kind of did that U turn and started heading towards DC. And I-, I-, I think one thing about when you live in in the region that you're in, that people remember that day in a way different way. Like they're like, "Yeah, I know people in Arkansas might go never forget," and then they forgot about it two seconds later. But it's like. I saw the smoke from my building. I stepped over bodies. Uh, I was out of school for several days because our school was in, in, enveloped and in, engulfed in uh, smoke and f- dust and everything like that. And just that different perspective that kind of kind of shook a lot of people. So it's uh yeah, it's it's really interesting when you get that perspective from people. And uh, I, I took my wife there a couple of years ago when we went. We were in New York and went to the site and. Cause we've, cause we also went to Shanksville and I've been to the Pentagon outside the Pentagon and it's just like, you really get to see this. You're like, it's still eerie to this day. Yeah, it
1: definitely is. And I mean, I'll tell you what, like, uh, it's a day that you just never forget. And I know that it's been 22 years, but <laughs> nowadays nothing ever seems like it was years ago. Everything still seems fresh in your mind for things. And I just look at it this way. I just say to myself, that's where I always say to myself that no matter what goes on in my life, I have to feel fortunate because so many people that day were innocent people that lost their lives and they were just going to work. And I mean, people that were on those planes were just going on vacation or maybe a business trip and their their freedom and their you know life was attacked that day and they lost their lives. And that's the most important thing that I think people need to understand is, Never forget what those people went through, because we went through it as a country, but they lived, you know, they had to be on the planes, They had to be in those towers and they had the fear that none of us could really understand unless we were there ourselves. So my heart always goes out to those victims and their families.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's talk about something a little, a little nicer, a little more fun. Uh, you mentioned your you grew up with the Yankees and everything, and even though he was a yeah. Met great, he also played for the Yankees. It was checking out some of your interview with uh, that I have here on the video with Dwight Gooden. I mean, that's got to be really cool as somebody who's a New Yorker and how larger than life Dwight Gooden. You want to talk about he? When I say larger than life, it, what for a decade they had that Mets billboard in Times Square. As soon as you get out of I think it was the Lincoln Tunnel, and yeah. you just see this massive Dwight Gooden thing for a decade. What was it like talking to this guy?
1: Let me tell you, I mean, he was the nicest guy. Like I first interviewed him, Tony, uh, in, uh, March of 2022. And we did like, I'd say we did like a 30 minute interview and he was just so polite. And it, it was, it was funny too. Cause I, the day before we did like a quick link to make sure he knew how to use StreamYard when I sent it to him and he was at a bank and He's talking to me at a bank, and I just thought it was like cool. Like, you know, he, he's not talking to me like, oh, um, because sometimes you you think when somebody's a celebrity, they're on a different level than you. He talked to me like a normal person would talk to me if like I saw somebody at a bank or at a store, and he was just so polite. And then each time I've interviewed him three times, and every time I've interviewed him, he is very good at he's very engaging. He tells you stuff about his career. And he's just a real nice man. That's the thing I uh, noticed about him more than anything. And I know in his past, he had some struggles in his life. But the thing of it is, is one thing I will never, you can never criticize him for is not being a nice guy. He's a nice guy and nobody's perfect, but he really is like, and to go on my show three different times says a lot about him and the type of person he really is.
0: He's very candid because there was that 86 Mets uh, documentary that it was a 30 for 30 came out, I think like a year or two ago. And he talks about it. He's like, yeah, uh, I should have been at that parade and I was in a crack house. It was my it should have been the highest point of my life. We win the win the World Series seven games after the Bill Buckner game. And here I am in a crack den with uh, with some horrible people. And I should be at the parade with all my teammates. And then he he's talked about his suicide attempts and just everything that happened and you're like, but I it was it was amazing because so uh, I'm not far from Cleveland and we had Dwight Gooden towards the end of his career and I'm like oh man it was like it was a shadow of, of his former self you're like oh that's we got Dwight Gooden and you're like oh the guy throws about eighty two miles an hour <laughs> over the plate like what happened to that blazing fastball from nineteen eighty four when he was the rookie but he I mean some people talk about those first two years when he's the rookie and then he wins that Cy Young has some of the lowest ERA of all time of any pitcher in his second season. And there wasn't a run, anything like that to that point or probably since then, as far as the first two years of a career goes.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And think about what you said a few minutes ago and it's, it, you know, about him um, not making the parade, we've tend to forget sometimes that was his third year in baseball. He was only 21 years old. And think about it. I mean, when you're 21 years old, you're still making mistakes. You're not fully matured. And I think sometimes we looked at him, and especially I did when I was a kid that he was this grown adult and he, he, I'm thinking to myself, he makes all this money, but he's 21 years old. He's still a kid pretty much. You know, you don't know, like if he had like a, good influences around him at the time because he's a, he, I asked him on the first interview I did. I think I said to him, I always thought about you being a 19 year old kid and your first uh, pitching debut is going to be in Houston. And I told him when I was 19, I had trouble finding certain towns in Connecticut. And this is a guy who's in Houston and he doesn't know the area at all. And he's got to get to the ballpark and stuff that always like stood out to me the most is like, He was a young kid having to go to these different ballparks, and there's no GPSs. So he had to grow up a lot quicker than, say, you and me did.
0: Well, and he also threw a lot of pitches. Davey Johnson left him in the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even though, you know, you got Roger McDowell in the bullpen, Jesse Orozco. You have a pretty solid bullpen, but uh, my God – They put Doc Gooden out there for way too many pitches, ruined his career at the beginning. Obviously he, you know, he had, he had his uh, addiction problems and stuff, but I think that was more. So he just threw so many pitches. He's these in playoff games, pitching 10 innings in the eighties. This isn't like Johnny Vandermeer in 1938 throwing no hitters in extra innings. You're like, no, this is Dwight Gooden. Who's it's nearly the nineties and he's still pitching that much, but that I mean, it's that's incredible. That's a great get. Another great get, a guy who's actually been on my podcast, though, so I got to get him on again because uh, I did a phoner. And thank God we have Zoom now because it sounds a lot clearer. But I had this guy, Steve Stolier, on. Oh, yeah. And- he, was great.
1: he was a great guy, uh, very friendly. And, I mean, he, he's got a great story to tell, as you well know. I mean, listen, I mean, how many people could say they uh, were the, the secretary for Groucho Marx? So, I mean that's just a remarkable, uh, story in itself. And I mean, he was a lot of fun. He really was a lot of fun to interview.
0: Yeah. He's uh, for folks who don't know. And uh, again, I got to get him back on because it's been a few years since I've had him. Um, yeah, he worked with Groucho because he was a huge fan. And when he went to, I believe it was UCLA, he had, uh, he and a couple other people were trying to get certain uh uh, animal crackers which was the lost marx brothers movie because if you grew up if you were a baby boomer and you grew up and you were a big marx brothers fan you basically saw night at the opera day at the races and that was basically about it there were a couple others that seemed like they were uh like white whales and they couldn't get and one of them that was out of print was animal crackers and they tried to rally over 40 years since it had been released and nobody had seen it and uh, they had this big rally on their campus and even brought Groucho Marx and Aaron Fleming and got to a point where he started working as like in the mail room at Groucho's house over on uh, Crest Hill in Beverly Hills. And it's such a great story because you watch the Groucho on in the movies or in You Bet Your Life, but you don't really know much about the Groucho in the later years. So he's wearing the beret and he's going on the Dick Cavett show and he's had a couple of strokes since then. And it's, it's a real fascinating read. It's called raised eyebrows. It's a great book, but that's great that you got a chance to talk to him. I'm assuming you're probably a, you were probably a Marx brothers fan. You followed his story, right?
1: Oh yeah. I I said this. I don't know if I, I got to remember if I said it to Steve um, on the show, but I know I said it to somebody. uh, The first dummy that I had when I was a little kid was Groucho Marx. Um, I think I got it for Christmas when I was maybe six years old, seven years old. And, um, I had always tried to pretend I was him and sound like him. I couldn't do a good impression of him, but I always remember he was the first uh dummy I had and I just thought uh you know I was very always impressed with his career and I mean he was a genius when you get right down to it. He really was. I mean he he wasn't just a good comedian or a good actor or whatever. He was a genius. He really was.
0: Yeah Groucho was one of those you started seeing a lot of quotes and unlike the Marilyn Monroe quotes, which I think were all fake uh, Groucho's Groucho had writers, but he could also riff off the cuff too. And he, uh, it's so funny because when I think of uh, when I was a kid, my dad's a baby boomer and he was into watching a lot of Marx brothers. So I was raised on watching not to, my, I mean, my dad still loves night at the opera, but I think if you're talking in, in rating some of the, I think that was the beginning of the, and I think Steve Steve Stoller would tell you that the night, the opera was the beginning of the end because that was the MGM days where they were making more money. But I thought the the quality was upped as far as the production value. But I think the quality, as far as the uh, storyline started going down, I think duck soup is, is their best film. And, um, you know, a couple of uh, horse feathers is great and animal crackers and coconuts and, there, uh, there were great films and everything, but baby boomers really attached themselves to Groucho. In days where the Bob Hopes and uh, the John Waynes of the world were like their parents' generation, they kind of seemed out of touch during, the, especially during the '60s and the counterculture days. Then you have Groucho, who was the counterculture warrior of the 1930s. Who, they're like, wait a second, Groucho is still around, and he became cool again by the 60s and the 70s. I always thought yeah. that was kind of fascinating, and Steve was the kind of one of the ringleaders in order to help uh, promote that uh, resurgence of popularity with Groucho.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when Groucho died, I mean, he was probably just as popular as he was uh, starting out in his career. I mean, he had a resurgence, and you could really give Steve a lot of credit for that because... uh you know, the stuff Steve did behind the scenes really helped resurrect Groucho's career.
0: That's amazing. It's it's such a great story. Yeah. I gotta I gotta get him back on. Um, so I mean, like these are these are great interviews. And obviously, you know, we mentioned a couple that are like really cool, like big gets, but of course you have a lot of small gets. And when I say small, I'm not saying not diminishing the quality or anything. It's just that they're not obviously household names, but uh, it, having them be hometown heroes is what you want to do. You want to help promote and, and and tell people about these stories and stuff like that. And it's, it's great. And like everybody that you have on has a story to tell whether they're Dwight Gooden or they're the, you know, the second grade kicker on the soccer team or whatever, who overcame something like it could be a, a, anything in between, which I think again is a, is a great opportunity and a great outlet to put that out there on YouTube now. Yeah,
1: it definitely is. And, uh, like I said, it's a labor of love because you have to enjoy doing it. If you kind of have the attitude like, oh, I got to do a show today, then you really shouldn't do it because anytime you do a show, you should go into it and it should be fun. And, um, you know, really, I think a turning point for me with the Hometown Heroes was and I still sometimes I I don't want to say amaze myself, but I'm still like, I can't believe I actually got this guy on, but I had him in studio and New Canaan, Connecticut allowed us to use their uh, parks and recs f- facility to do this interview. But I was able to have a gentleman who was a big sports talk show host in New York for over 20 years with a show called Mike and the Mad Dog. And then he became big in serious Radio. And that was Christopher Mad Dog Russo. And I was able to get him. What do you say that, Mikey? <laughs> yeah, I was able to get him and his son, Tim. And we did a father-son tribute for Hometown Heroes. And what was cool about it was, I just got to, you got to see the other side of Mad Dog. You always saw the sports side. But when I did this interview, we brought up some stuff with Mike and the Mad Dog, a little bit about Chris's career. But it was really about the father and son aspect between him and his son, Tim. And Tim was trying to become, and he's got an assistant coaching job now, which we're very happy about to see he's doing well. But he was really trying to become a college basketball coach. So we talked about that throughout a lot of the interview. So it was nice to do an interview like that, but it really was special for me because um I had a few people tell me, listen, that's a pipe dream. You're never gonna get them on. You gotta like give that up. So to get them on, that's when I knew like I was doing something right with doing these shows.
0: Well, what's, what's down the pike? Like, uh, what, what, you know, we're kind of wrapping up, uh, 2023 going into 24, you looking to continue to grow the podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. uh yeah. like what, what direction are you still going to keep the same, what you have? Or are you going to look in terms of like, is there any, I don't want to say uh, like any tweaks cause you obviously have a good concept. You have some good thing going right now, but is there something that you're looking forward to or any like, uh, uh, you know, the,
1: the toughest part, Tony, is trying to get subscribers. I mean, I I feel like I do good shows. I'm a good interviewer and I just can't seem to get enough people to subscribe. Like that's been the toughest part. And I'll look at like some other podcasts and these guys got like, you know, 20,000 subscribers or even like a thousand subscribers. I'd gladly take that. So that's been the toughest part is it's just so hard to kind of get your name out there on YouTube. You would think YouTube wouldn't be that hard to do, but it is. So I really would like to see the podcast grow. And what I mean by that is I want audiences from all over the place. You know, you talk about Cleveland where you are. I would like to see people from Cleveland be able to see my shows because I think people would enjoy my shows. And I do think that like I'll look at the numbers sometimes, and I'll get a lot of nice views, and then some I will only get like thirty. So that part's a little disappointing because these are really good people I'm having on who do a great job and they tell great stories. And I just wish I could get more subscribers. So that's the only thing that like I'm still working on is trying to build that audience.
0: Yeah, it's uh, th- that's one thing I'm kind of at myself right now. But I, I, you know, doing this is a labor of love. This isn't my main gig. That's the one thing I think it's a misconception or perception from people. They're like, oh, you don't have a lot of subscribers. You don't have it's like, well, if this were my main thing, then maybe I have a little bit of a problem. But this is my secondary thing. This is my hobby. I'm cultivating the skills that I had in several years working in media. And I feel like I have a gift that I can show to somebody else that has that opportunity. And if it finds an audience, it does. It, it, we live in this universe now because there is an oversaturation of podcasts. Let's be honest here, there, everybody and your uncle and your aunt have a podcast nowadays. So it's trying to navigate that, but it's also having a, a certain niche. It, it's finding your audience and also having a niche. What can you do to set yourself out, your, your opinions, whether your content, whether your graphics, whatever it can be, What can you do to set yourself apart from all the others that might be doing very similar things? And, you know, it's, it's a tough universe to navigate during that when you have, again, everybody has a podcast, but I think the biggest thing in my advice, and I think this would be your advice too. Uh, I, I, I would assume because just looking at the amount of content you have is you, the, the person who wants to get into doing a podcast. I, I have people ask me this all the time. What do I do? What do I have to do? I said, keep putting stuff out there you can't just put a podcast or a video out there and then now i'll I'll take next week off and then maybe i'll do another one two weeks later and then it's like i don't really feel like it maybe i'll pick it up again no it's like you have to consistently put something out there to gain an audience because if you're not if somebody's looking in their podcast queue or they don't get their notifications they'll be like well, eh, I, I could probably give up on the show. They don't seem like they're putting enough effort into it. So I'm not going to put any any effort into it. So that's why I always tell people, you got to If you're going to do it, you have to make that commitment, even if it is a labor of love, even if it is something you're just kind of doing as a fun hobby, like pick up basketball on the side, is to at least put something out consistently. So that's why I put out like four podcasts a week, mainly behind paywalls. But it's still it's something consistent where everybody knows every Wednesday they're going to get the podcast
1: right and that's what i've been doing i mean we've always had a show at least once a week sometimes i or two and if i get a third one i'll do 3 a week it doesn't matter but there's always a consistency there with that and that's important too and i always enjoy all the guests i have and all of them you know i had a, a actress a few weeks back and she's really starting to like break out and she's doing great things and um she did it late in life as well her name is uh candace uh and lee and to a lot of people they may not know who she is because she hasn't had that big movie per se but she's done some films she was one of the actresses highlighted at the super bowl a couple years ago and she's really starting to make an impact and the point i make to you is i'm talking to her and i mean she's doing so many great things right now acting she's a fitness trainer she um is a photographer. She does all these things. And that's the thing that's really cool about when you interview uh, the different people in the business is they're not just actors. They have these other things they do as well that they really enjoy. And I mean, to me, I know for a fact, she's going to make it really big because she has that work ethic and determination and she's willing to put the sacrifice in. So when you interview people like that and you see that how hard it is to succeed in this business, but they're doing it and they're not letting anything stop them. That's really cool when you get to interview people like that.
0: Well, and also, you know, not just in our universe of doing podcasting is everything is oversaturated to the point where, and I know you, I had Bennett yelling on my podcast. I know you had him on too, is that he's, he's had time to do podcasts because he anything else he's been doing the, on this writers strike for the past several months now and one of their big concerns is how ai is going to take over and the way i look at it is and, and I, I don't mean to sound insensitive towards it but there eventually ai is going to take over in a lot of ways in my opinion yes there is a human element to stories and everything that ai can't necessarily replicate but uh, when you are somebody who has the budget and you're going to say, let's say I can pay a chat GPT service or pay a writer $100,000 to write something, you're going to look in terms of what the cheaper option is, even if it kind of cuts corners when it comes to quality. So we're all in this universe of we can't just be a podcaster. We have to be a pod. Some people can, and God bless them, but a lot of us, they we kind of just are doing this because we have a passion for it. And I think that's the other thing is not only that you do a podcast assistant, but also the listeners can tell you're very passionate about something. And clearly with uh, in the spotlight and hometown heroes that you have is that people know you, the audience that checks it out knows that you have a passion for this. Uh, Would you like to have a bigger audience? Sure. So would I, so would everybody, but you know, eventually that audience, if you keep plugging away, There's there's chance something you're you're going to have something that pops. And and the same with me and the same with countless and I mean, countless other podcasters. We're not all competing for the same thing as much as we all have podcasts. We're not. It's not like terrestrial radio from 40 years ago where you're feuding with the guy down the dial. You are. Mm going up against other podcasters, but it's completely different concepts. So we're kind of a, a lot of this is all in this together. and We would love to grow. So that's why I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you on the podcast here. And uh, I, uh, you know, I hope the best for, for you. And I, I think you have a, a great mission of what you have going on, on on your page.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Tony. I really do. And the thing is, too, as far as you made a good point about there's a million podcasts and we're not really competing. And I've never looked at it as competing with anyone. And like I said, I mean, there's been different guys who do podcasts. If they ask me, you know, hey, can you get me in touch with this person? I do whatever I can to get them in touch with that person. And if I ask them, hey, is there any chance you might be able to help me out? We all help each other out because we all know that it's not easy to just get a guest on. So we all try to help each other out so I don't ever look at it as competing with each other I look at it as we're all doing the same thing that we love and we work together as a team
0: so uh, one more time uh, what's what's the show again and uh, where can we find it
1: okay so there's there's two shows um, Hometown Heroes which is done monthly Uh, that's on YouTube and it's also on a local uh, station where I live but I mean unless you live in valley in connecticut you won't really get to see it on tv but it'll always go right to youtube and my youtube page is called in the spotlight mike kenichi and the other show obviously is in the spotlight which airs weekly and i've had a number of guests i've had guests that like don most uh david proval um carol potter keith coogan jeremy london just to name a few uh john capelos so I've had so many people and I I would hope you check out those interviews and you'll really enjoy them. I mean, the guests do such a great job and they really make the show. All I have to do is ask the questions, but they really make it happen. So I I just would ask that you check it out because I think you'll enjoy it.
0: Well, Mike, thanks for doing the podcast today. Thanks for being on the Check Your Brain podcast and uh, good luck. And yeah, let's keep in touch.
1: Definitely. And I appreciate you having me on Tony. And I think you do a great job and um I look forward to seeing more of your shows. So thank you again.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate you uh, folks for watching and listening to this podcast. Again, it's the check your brain podcast goes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Also on YouTube, I'm on rumble and, bunch of other platforms. And a Patreon, if you want to hear more episodes like this and more uh, solo podcasts that I have, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. For just three bucks a month, you get upwards of 20 to 25 podcasts a month. Sounds like a good deal to me. Well, well, I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money, but thank you. (laughs) Thanks everybody for watching today's episode. Yeah, I'll be back with you with another free episode of the Check Your Brain podcast coming up next week.